You're listening to Season 2, Episode 16 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. And I'll sell the bidding at $200,000, at $200,000, $300,000, is bid already at $400,000. Give me five, at $400,000. Still on the phone, the telephone, Elizabeth's bid, $500,000, a new place here, $500,000. A little over a week ago, at a Sotheby's auction, a drawing sold for a little over $600,000. Thank you, Lisa. L0056. In full disclosure, I have such a love-hate relationship when it comes to auctions. Because, yeah, on the one hand, they can often breed these garish and superficial displays of wealth, people just flexing for the sake of flexing to show everybody how rich they actually are. But, you know, that being said, though, I can't help but also love them. Because so often, these auctions, they bring together incredible collections, amazing objects that are expertly curated for the public to see, often for the very first time. And as a designer, I've spent a lot of my career obsessing over objects and the stories that they tell. So this is right up my alley. And besides, these places always have free cheese and wine, and I'm basically a raccoon with pants on, so, you know, I'll definitely be there. Penal measurement competitions aside, though, the price for this drawing seems oddly defensible to me. You know, assuming you have an extra 600k just lying around. Because, first of all, it's worth noting that this was not some elaborate painting, but rather just a humble sketch. And as far as sketches go, it's not even really that remarkable. In fact, many of you who are listening to me right now, you can technically draw better than what's on this sheet of paper. But the value of this drawing lies entirely in the idea that it represents. That idea was nothing short of revolutionary. This sketch was of a watch, a watch called the Royal Oak by a company called Audemars Piguet by an artist named Gerald Genta back in 1972. And in the early 70s, the watch industry was in complete turmoil because of this thing that's often referred to as the quartz crisis. Someday, all watches will be made this way. Quartz. It's where these cheap battery-powered watches from Japan, they became all the rage overnight. And traditional watch brands that have been around for centuries, like, you know, Audemars Piguet, they were rendered completely obsolete with a single press release. I think of it as something like when Apple came out with the iPhone, all those old Flash websites, they just went away. But this drawing and the watch that came from it, it really did change the watch world. In fact, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that this sketch, it saved the entire Swiss watch industry and redefined what luxury meant decades ahead of its time. I'm convinced that brands like Rolex, they would be out of business without it. But here's the catch. The stroke of genius was designed in a single night. Repeat, a single night. And this is the topic I want to unpack today because this is a theme that keeps coming up over and over again when it comes to works of creative genius, A Single Night. Frank Lloyd Wright famously designed Falling Water, his most iconic building, in a single night. Sylvester Stallone wrote Rocky, his most iconic work, over the course of three days with most of that breakthrough happening in the first night. He sat down and wrote for 20 hours straight and had that eureka moment in a single night. 
Or more recently, Adele said that she wrote Skyfall, a song for which she won a Grammy for Best Original Song in a single night. Creative genius, fully formed, all at once, in a single night. So what is going on here? In the very first episode of this podcast, I made the argument that creative genius for most of us, myself included, is simply the result of iteration, failure, and hard work. Yet this theme of overnight and seemingly immediate brilliance, it just keeps coming up. Is it just that these examples were made by people that are more brilliant than we are? You know, maybe. But genius that's a result of prodigy, this is very well documented. Academics like David Gelson, he's written about this ad nauseum, about these kinds of geniuses, prodigies, if you will. He calls those people conceptual geniuses, those whose ideas are the result of prodigy as opposed to iteration. But these examples that we just went through, they just aren't that kind of genius. Because in each of those instances, the in-one-night idea, it was a fluke. But we'll talk more about that in just a bit. Or are these brilliance in a single night ideas? Are they just examples of inspiration striking at an opportune time? The muse catching the gaze of its servant, if you will. Again, possibly. Certainly, inspiration can strike at random. We've all experienced some version of that at some point or another. But I think there's more going on here than simple inspiration. I recently stumbled across an obscure series of writings that have changed the way that I think about where ideas come from. Back in the 1960s, there was this ad man, as he called himself, he worked in advertising, named James Webb Young. And James, he tried to come up with a reliable process for generating ideas. And I actually like that he came from this world of advertising because there's such a transactional marketplace for ideas there. I give you money, you give me ideas, and we sell stuff. It's kind of cold and mechanical. Very little emotion, all process. So Young, he tried to come up with this framework to generate ideas. And unlike most polished frameworks that you might see from a consultancy like IDEO or something, his process was really, really crude, very poorly written. I mean, the 17 pages that I read, they were an assault on the English language. I'm kind of not kidding. But the lack of polish in some sense is why I think it's so effective because it was born from the trenches of actually making work instead of some idyllic or deeply philosophical place. It wasn't about making a deck to show to your boss. It was about actually making things happen. So I believe that this process kind of accidentally uncovered where these in a single night moments of brilliance come from. It's not the result of prodigy, but perhaps some version of this process. So the first step of his process for generating ideas is to gather raw materials, you know, research. But the key to this step lies in the nature of the research. Young said that you need to do two kinds of research at the same time, specific and general. Specific has to do with the specifics of the project that you're working on. So if you were designing shoes, let's say, you'd research the brand, the genre, the consumer trends, etc., all this obvious stuff. But then you would supplement that with the second kind of research, research he calls the general. 
This is basically what it means to be an interesting person, because this kind of research can come in nearly any form. Reading books, watching videos, studying art, watching Euphoria, so good, am I right? (laughs) On and on and on. So yeah, specific and general research. That's step one. With those raw materials in hand and in mind, we then move to the second phase, where you actually try to solve the problem. This is the sweat equity part of the process, and your goal here is to generate as many ideas as possible. Potential solves fill the wall until you can't go any further. Your goal is literally to hit a wall where there's nothing else you can do. Then, step three, the incubation stage. This is where you walk away and you let your subconscious mind do all of the work. Your mind can't live with cognitive dissonance, and it works to solve the problem on your behalf. When you leave the work, your mind is processing all of those variables, and that's when step four happens, the eureka moment, where the idea emerges seemingly out of nowhere. Your subconscious, it just gives you the answer, and I gotta say, this happens to me all the time. I'll be taking a shower or riding a train, and the answer will just come to me. And to show my hand here, this is the phase where I believe that in one night phenomenon, this is where it comes from. I believe that these moments of overnight brilliance, if you will, only come if you've done steps one through three. We research, and the specific and general research bounces off of each other, if you will. X reminds you of Y. A scene in a movie will resonate, but you're not yet sure why until later. And when we do steps one, two, and three, research, attempt to solve, and then walk away, that's what we have to do to set the table for that muse to finally visit us. Thank you, Lisa. L0056, thank you very much indeed. So back to Genta's sketch and his moment of genius. Yes, the watch was designed in a single night, but what I didn't tell you is that he'd been working to design new types of watches for about a decade. In fact, he designed over 100 watches for Audemars Piguet before the Royal Oak with limited success. These 100 designs acted as proxy for step two, trying to solve the problem. We also know that Genta loved galleries and cultural events. And during a trip to a museum, he saw this incredible first-generation diving suit. You know, those terrifying-looking ones from the turn of the century that look like, I don't know, a homemade spacesuit or something? Anyway, he was inspired by how the helmet was attached to the suit with these giant bolts and how the glass face mask attached to the larger helmet. It spoke to him. And you can see this sensibility directly in the design of the watch. The face of the watch is clearly influenced by this suit's sensibilities. Let's quickly sum all of that up. Genta's specific research, knowledge of the brand, industry, his craft, etc., was supplemented with general research, museum visits, and academic thought, He also made a hundred or more previous attempts to design a new type of watch, but kind of hit a wall. And these forces, combined with the inherent nature of being a freelancer, where you have downtime while you're waiting for another commission, I see all of that as steps one, two, and three of Jung's ideation process. And when it was time to go, the idea came fully baked. I see that $600,000 sketch and the revolution it represents as his hand printing out what his subconscious had been working on for God only knows how long. Similar steps can be seen in Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, which is his most iconic building. 
It was commissioned by the Kaufman family, and it's worth noting here that at the time of this commission, Wright was considered to be past his prime. He was 70, and commissions were beginning to slow down. And frankly, this is one of my favorite things about Wright in his career, that his most iconic buildings, they were designed so late in his life, falling water in his 70s, the Guggenheim in New York in his 90s. Given his late success, clearly Wright wasn't a prodigy. He wasn't the conceptual genius type, but rather the iterative genius type, which is why I think he followed our framework to generate his in-a-single-night idea. Wright spent his entire life essentially exploring the idea of what he called organic architecture. That was the notion that buildings should peacefully coexist within the landscape. In Wright's words, quote, no house should ever be on a hill, it should be of the hill. He designed hundreds of buildings prior to falling water, which is incredibly prolific for an architect. He thought about architecture deeply. Beyond the buildings, he often designed the furniture and the fabrics that would also go in the buildings. He even went so far as to design a dress for one family to wear while in it. He had a huge and obnoxious ego. There's no getting around that. But I can appreciate the thoroughness of intent and execution here. He wanted to design the entirety of the thing. And when you add to that the dozens of books that Wright also wrote, and it's completely fair to say that Wright lived out steps one, two, and three of our idea generation process that we've been exploring. Research specifically and generally, yes. Iterated to solve problems deeply, also yes. And then there's the walk away and let the idea come to you part of our process. So let's unpack that. Back in 1934, Wright visited the site in Pittsburgh with the Kaufman family, and he asked for survey drawings of the place, and then he left. A year later, Kaufman called for a surprise visit to Wright's studio to check in, but Wright, he hadn't designed a single drawing. Nothing. Then, over the course of two hours, a single night, Wright designed the entire thing. It was his most complete expression of his design philosophy. The drawings, they just poured out of him. Though he hadn't drawn anything, he had obviously been thinking about it constantly. His subconscious was working the problem day and night. The idea emerged fully formed. Like Genta and the watch, it was as though Wright's hand was simply printing the idea that his subconscious has been processing for the last 12 months. In the interest of time, I won't go into another example deeply, but I did mention Rocky in the beginning, and it is see picture of exactly what we've been talking about. Stallone, as a baby, suffered profound nerve damage, and it really did handicap a lot of his aspirations. It was a lifetime of struggle, but Stallone iterated through it. He worked to become an actor, and he failed. He worked to write, and he failed. He couldn't find his footing. It was failure after failure after failure. But then... When he left the work, that's when the idea came to him. He went to go see a Muhammad Ali fight, and boxing became this perfect allegory for his entire life. An underdog winning against all odds. His subconscious paired that moment with his lifetime of struggle and iteration and gave him the idea on a silver platter. We all like to think of ourselves as rational people, but creativity is a messy and a mystical thing. There's just no getting around this. And you know, in researching for this episode, I read that Descartes came up with the idea for the scientific method in a dream. 
His subconscious gave him the answer again in a single night, literally. Though the scientific process is the ultimate expression of human rationality, let's not forget that it was born from a mystical place. In fact, Descartes said that he was afraid to tell people where the idea actually came from because he thought that people would mock him and discredit it. In our scientific age, we've lost our relationship with the mystical, with the magical, with the unknown. In ancient Rome, creativity was conceived as something of a spirit, a genie or genius as we now call it. Then that genie would visit you and would literally live in the walls of an artist's studio and as irrational as that sounds, there is some mystical truth to this. When we delve deeply into a problem, we research far and wide, we iterate to an absurd limit. That is our sacrifice to the gods. And only then can the genie visit with the idea in hand, often all at once in a single night. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. We're releasing new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday, so be sure to hit subscribe now to stay up to speed. And if you'd like to listen to past episodes or check out our television show, America by Design, go to our website, americabydesigntv.com. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to shoot me a note. Hello at willhall.co. We'll see you next Tuesday.